0: The last thing we looked at was the disciples' reassurance. The end of Matthew 28:20, 20, "Lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world." Jesus is going to be with us until he returns physically. We have his presence. He has not left us alone. He's left us with the person the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit. So today, my plan is to look at what I consider one of the most difficult portions of our New Testament. We're going to cover that one. And then we're going to look at Jesus' exit from this world. So, let's have a word of prayer and we'll look at our new text. Our Father, I thank you for your goodness. Lord, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you are interested in us. God, thank you for being willing to use us and for... Lord, working with broken people like us. I thank you for your power that you can can accomplish these things. Lord, would you please help us this morning? Help us to be serious-minded about you. Help us to be able to block out the distractions of this world and to focus our attention on you. God, I, I ask that you would Allow Your Spirit free reign to minister to us and to apply Your Word in each of our lives where we need it most. Change us as a result of our time here. God, I I ask for Your help as I preach. Please keep me from error. Help me not to be a distraction to the truths that You desire to have taught. Lord, above all, would You please in some way glorify Yourself as a result of our Our brief time here this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Mark, chapter 16, before we start this section, I I mentioned that I consider this one of the most difficult portions, and I'll explain to you why. About a month or so ago, uh, I was talking with with our daughter, working in the back, and He just made an off-the-cuff comment about it's really hard when you're dealing with some passages to talk with people about them. And he mentioned verses 17 and 18 in this passage that we're going to be looking at. And he was right. He was totally right. This section of Mark that we're looking at right now has been debated since the first, second century. From the very beginning, these verses were fought over. They were, it was a source of, of conflict. The majority of the writers that we have from back in the first century, most, the vast majority of them had, were of the opinion that the book of Mark actually ended in verse 8. It didn't end in verse 20. Now, what we have today is called the long ending. Of Mark, and just to give you an idea of the, prov- the the prevalence of that that theme of the book ending earlier, there are 32,000. I can't even wrap my head around this really. 32,000 quotations from our New Testament quoted by the early church fathers. Of those 32,000, it is said that you could take pretty much what those fellows wrote in that first century and you could take their Scripture references that they quoted and you would pretty much write the New Testament. They were prolific writers. They wanted to write about what God had said. But from this section of the book of Mark, there is one quote that came from verse 19 portion of verse 19 it's just not mentioned much so this this section of scripture is 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 at best questionable now my goal is not to shake your confidence in the word of God that's not the desire that I have here today um, one of the we're going to cover these verses because of this simple fact. There's no new doctrine added by anything that's in this, this long ending. There is nothing that is contradictory to other portions of Scripture. There's one thing that is recorded nowhere else, and we're going to see we'll we'll highlight that one. But there's nothing contradictory that's not taught. So we're going to take this today, we're going to hit this odd text and we're going to cover this. And I trust that as we go through it, God will use the truths that are there to help us and to strengthen us. Now, that one-odd text, again, verse 17 and 18, it is mentioned nowhere else in our New Testament. We do have evidences of people doing these things, but we don't have other places where these are command. We see Paul especially mentioning. These miracles, mentioning the things that would be done, but the danger with a passage like this—and this happens—there are groups who will take verses that we're going to look at, and they will make their a part of their religion doing these things, such as handling snakes, drinking poison, and and that will become part of their religion. And it's um, it's happening today, and it's not wise. So. All that to say, there's your intro part. Let's hit first of all, the necessity of regeneration, the necessity of regeneration. Verse 16, Mark 16:16, 16, 16, "He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned." Now these verses are extremely close. When you start looking back into John chapter three, these verses are a, a summarization. Of John 3. Those who become followers of Jesus, they are saved. Those who reject the gift of Jesus, they are already condemned. They're condemned now. It's not they'll be condemned when they die. They are condemned while they are in the process of rejecting Jesus Christ. And that would go with anyone in this room today. If you have never received Jesus, it's not that, well, one day you may suffer. Right now, you are condemned. That's that's how it works. That's John chapter 3. That is this verse here. Those who reject are already under condemnation and they're damned to a literal hell. Not just absence of God. That's what it is. It's the absence of God, but you are damned to a literal hell. Why do I say this? This truth, The truth that those who don't know Jesus are already condemned, what that should do for you and I is cause us, that should motivate us to be zealous. It should motivate us to want to go and speak to our unsaved friends. And if you don't have unsaved friends, can I just encourage you with something? Make some. Make unsaved friends. I don't know how else you're going to witness to people unless you're making unsaved friends. You need to develop relationships so that you can share the Gospel with people. And if you're not sharing the Gospel with your unsafe friends, let me just shoot real straight with you. They're not your friend. Because if they were your friends, you'd care enough about them that you wouldn't want them going to hell. That's what friends do. They help each other. They care about each other. And when you and I are so self-centered that we can't share the Gospel with those around us, you don't like them. You don't care about them. Where our affections lie are with number one. That's why we don't witness. We need to be actively engaging people with their need of a Savior. That's our job. This is a truth that every one of us needs to internalize. I wish I could give you a pill and, you know, here, boom, you're there now. I wish I could give me a pill and I'm there now. I can't do that. You and I need to submit ourselves to our Lord and be willing to obey him and be willing to follow him. That's what we have to do. But he says here, (coughs) excuse me, he that believes and is baptized. Now this verse is one of the ones. Acts has a lot of them but this is one that people will turn to and say okay in order to be saved you must be baptized it's called baptismal regeneration there are churches in our area today that are teaching this heresy it's wrong we are not baptism is a work i can dunk anybody i can it doesn't matter who you are i can get you wet but i can't get you saved You need to have a moment in time when you come to Jesus Christ. Baptism is closely related to it because it's an outward profession of the inward transaction that's happened. And that's what we do. So he said, whoever is saved and whoever is baptized. Now, are there any scriptural references that help us with this? That would tell us, no, you don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. How about thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. And if, Jesus, if he went to heaven, not baptized, then you don't have to be baptized to be saved. And Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So it's going to happen. So baptism is not a necessity. Baptism is a commandment, and you and I need to be obedient to that commandment. So Jesus showed that in his example. Uh, it's a natural second step. I'm not trying to minimize it but it's not a prerequisite for salvation. We're saved through faith, not of works. And baptism is a work. It's a good work, but it's a work. Second thing we see, the message to be ratified. The message to be ratified. Okay, verse 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In, the name, in my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. This is the part that's nowhere else. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now, these sign gifts, they're mentioned in Acts numerous times. We have them listed in the epistles, and there's, there's different views. I understand this. On the sign gifts, you've got one extreme. I would say I'm on neither extreme, but you've got one that says, God has done away with sign gifts, and he cannot... He cannot do them again. It's not possible. You've got the other side. The sign gifts that were there are just as valid today as they were then. You can just do them as you wish. It's just the Holy Spirit coming on you and everything goes right, and boom, you're doing the sign gifts. I would probably put myself somewhere in the middle of that. And I'll give you an example. I am not convinced that sign gifts are 100% taboo. They're gone. And here's my reasoning. If we have a missionary leave here, go to a land, to a country that they can't speak that language, and if God chooses for whatever purpose He wants to, if He chooses to give that person the ability to speak to someone in a tongue that they have never learned, I don't see anything in Scripture saying that God has His hands tied and that he's not able to do that. I would say it's not normal. This is not the process that we see people wanting to minister to others going through. We still see language school happening. We have this ability. These gifts, they were made for the primary purpose of validating these new religious leaders who were coming onto the scene and giving them a a measure of authority with the people around them. They were showing that these guys are for real. That's why God allowed them to be able to do these signs. But I'm not going to say that God has tied His hands necessarily and this can't happen because I don't see that in our Bible. I see that it's not normal based on history, but I don't see that it is forbidden based on the Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, But we need to be cautious with this. It is definitely not the norm. So let's just look at some of these that he mentions. The first one, casting out demons. Do we see this happening in our New Testament? We definitely do. And I'm not going to say that can't happen today. There is no command for this to happen on a regular basis today. There's, it's not commanded to go and do exorcisms, but I'll tell you what, we saw the, the apostles do it. We saw the apostles freeing people from their bondage. It happened numerous times. Acts 5.16 is one of them if you need a reference for that. Uh, they were told to in verse 2 to speak with new tongues. Speak with new tongues. Um, not going to spend a lot of time going over this. I will say this. In Acts 2, when that happened, the people were all surprised because they heard every man speak in his own what? Language. That's what they were speaking in. These were known tongues that somebody who had never learned before could all of a sudden speak. And yeah, that was miraculous. That's what surprised them all. It's not the gibberish that we have common in the Pentecostal movement today. It is a known tongue that was used, and that's why I'm saying I'm not convinced that it it is necessarily forbidden. God can do whatever he chooses to do. And he hasn't tied his hands in that that regard. Third one we have here is that uh, people would take up serpents. The only time I see this listed in our New Testament is when Paul was shipwrecked on Miletus, a snake came out of the wood, it bit him, he shook the thing off, he got rid of it, and the people would just sit around and watch for him to die. He should have been dead. Well, we have an example where he didn't. He didn't die. The thing didn't hurt him. But what you don't see is Paul having a little pit of vipers and going up and trying to play with them like some think is smart today. That's not what he did. This was a snake bit him, and he was protected. Same with that next thing, and again, this is the only time that I can can find that we have this in our New Testament. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. I see that nowhere else. In our Bible, I see no examples of that. In our Bibles... I have no idea where this came from. Now, is it possible that that happened with some of the early apostles as people were trying to kill them? Yes, it's definitely possible. Maybe there is something that is not recorded and that is what Mark or whoever would have tacked something on at the end, whichever way it may be. Maybe that was, there was an incident that they were remembering. I don't know. But this is the only time that we have this... um, given to us in our New Testament. Last one is healing. At the end of that verse, there's healing. And again, used by the apostles multiple times. God did choose to use most, maybe all, maybe all of these these early sign gifts to confirm His message. He chose to do it that way. He gave His supernatural power in such a way that he had promised so that his message would be furthered. That's what he wanted to do. And listen, here's here's the encouraging thing for me. The same power that gave supernatural abilities to these apostles is the power that's working in you and me today. Acts 1-8, we're going to see this in a couple of weeks. We have the power of God. It's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. We have the power of God working in us, enabling us, helping us. We have His power. And as we go through this, I trust that you'll be bringing that back to your mind. Look, I have no excuse. I've got the power of God helping me. Therefore, I need to get busy desiring to serve Him. Look at the third thing, the promise of the paraclete. (coughs) The promise of the paraclete. Go to the book of Luke for this one. And this is where we'll end up. Book of Luke, last chapter, 24, verse 44. At this point, the disciples, they've gone back down to Jerusalem. They're meeting Jesus there. This is where Jesus is going to leave them. It's where he's going to go back to heaven. His ascension's going to happen. But he's meeting them in Jerusalem. And that will be his last hurrah, if you will. So let's look at the first thing. Jesus' reminder, verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So he mentions the whole Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, that refers to the entire thing. And it's like that whole Old Testament is like one big finger, and it's all pointing right at Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that all of this is looking forward to. I'm the one that's fulfilling all of these prophecies. And notice he says here in in, in verse 44, all of these things must be fulfilled. He did not say all of these will be fulfilled. He said they must be fulfilled. It's not just a happenstance thing that, oh, yeah, it'll be fulfilled. No, they have to be. God's integrity is on the line. If his word does not fulfill itself, if he is not, if Jesus is not the answer to the Messiah, the prophecies of the Messiah, then God failed. It must be fulfilled. We must have a reputable, trustworthy God, and we do. And that's his point here. It must be fulfilled because of his integrity. Think of it in this sense. If you and I cannot trust God to fulfill the prophecies, how can, how can I trust him with my life? How can I trust Him with my eternity? How can I trust Him to say, okay, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to walk your way and trust you'll bless me. How could we trust Him if He cannot be faithful with the prophecies that He's made? Now, here He is speaking very specifically. All these things must be fulfilled. What things? They were anticipating, you remember, one coming of the Lord. They anticipated Jesus coming, setting up shop, wiping out the Romans, ushering in the Jews, and everything is happy. That's their anticipation. They didn't get it. Jesus had to go back and help them to see that the prophecies talked about a suffering Messiah. The prophecies talked about a crucifixion. The top prophecies were a resurrection. The prophecies... Went over all the betrayal, all, ever, all of this, the prophecies have hit. And what Jesus did is he showed them all of these prophecies. Now, why would he do that? This is, this is not a, okay, guys, I told you so. This is not an in your face that he's looking at them and trying to say, Look, I told you all this is going to happen. He's saying, Look, guys, you can trust me. Look at the prophecies. I told you this would happen. You can believe what I'm telling you. You can follow Me. And what He's doing for us is He's showing us very clearly He is dependable. He is trustworthy. You and I can count on Him to live our lives by. It's worth following this book because He's worthy of that. He's trustworthy. And the disciples, we saw this. As you read through Acts, you see, and through history, the disciples committed their lives to him. They committed their lives based on these teachings, and they followed him, most of them, to the death. Again, this is what we need to do, because he is worthy. That's his reminder. Look at his revelation. Jesus' revelation, verse 45, Then opened He their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. And He said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Okay, I like that first phrase because it, it, I like the wording of it. He opened their understanding. That word understanding, talking about their minds, uh, I mean, think about this. He couldn't just, it wasn't just that Jesus could read their minds. He could illuminate their minds. He can make their minds work, just like He does with you and me. He can make their minds work. But this word that He uses here, He opened their understanding. That word understanding, the literal meaning of that is to send together or to bring together. And I've used this phrase before. It makes sense to me. He helped them put all the pieces together. He sent it all together. Everything, He he caused it to make sense. For whatever reason, they were not able to get it all. They weren't able to grasp the whole big picture of how the Old Testament all pointed to Jesus. They weren't getting it. And He helped them put the pieces together. That's encouraging. And that's what He does with us often. He helps us to understand His Word. Now here, I would say with them, He was primarily helping them understand this first coming, second coming, how the different, His different appearances were going to happen. He helped them to understand that He was the suffering Messiah. Some people teach that this verse was just for those men. It was just for these apostles. Only certain, and you'll see where the heresy is of this, only certain people have the ability to be able to understand the Word of God and tell it to other people. Now, I'll agree with that to the point of the natural man doesn't understand. But I want to encourage you to get that mindset out of your mentality. There is nothing special that has been a God-given ability to anybody that uh, another believer doesn't have. The Holy Spirit can quicken His Word to every one of us. It's not just for the select few. Now, I did have one person come to me and they said, look, I'm struggling with this. Why is it that the Scripture is supposed to be able to be understood by believers and when I read the Scripture, there's a lot of it I don't get. Well, keep this in mind. There are passages in this Bible that godly people debate left and right. And they just don't... It's not clear. There are parts that are just really, really hard to understand. And if you think that that, that I can stand up here and just start chatting away off the cuff, you're dreaming. It takes a lot of time to go in and start studying out what do these words mean because... I look at it at first, and I'm thinking, "Oh my, I got to come up with something with this. This is hard. It takes study. It takes work." So if you're anticipating that you know salvation is a pill that we take, and all of a sudden all the scripture is crystal clear, you're in a dream world. It takes work. Here's what you have, though: you have the Holy Spirit of God helping you. You have God's Spirit desiring to teach you, and be- and, and better yet. Helping you apply the scriptures that you know and reminding you hey Christian Here's what Jesus said. You need to follow him. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He reminds us Of what we're supposed to be doing and he might say he pushes our buttons Puts us where we're supposed to be gets us back in the line because we're thick headed stubborn people That's how we are So it takes a lot of work so, but Jesus is revealing it. Notice in verse 46, He uses this word, it behooved. That goes right back to that same concept. It was a must. It wasn't just, yeah, Jesus could do it if He wants. No, it behooved Him. He had to do this. There were no options. Jesus had to suffer. He had to die. The Scripture had to be fulfilled for the integrity of God. And I would suggest he's probably referring back to passages like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, that are just so crystal clear about we have a suffering Messiah. And there's a lot of other passages like that. Those are just a couple of big ones. So, we know the Scripture prophesied. We have a suffering Messiah. He would be rising from the dead. But then he said that repentance and remission of sins would be preached. Repentance. This is revealed in the Old Testament to them as he's giving them their marching orders. And here what we're seeing is Luke's version of the Great Commission. So we've got Great Commission again. Let's just look at the aspects of it. The first one I want you to see is the second. We're going to skip the first. uh, Verse 47, that repentance and remission of sins. That's the one I want to start with remission of sins. This is the concept of pardon, of forgiveness. And what I would suggest to you is that this is our greatest need today. This is what people today need more than anything else. They need to be forgiven because we are already guilty. We are bound, as unsaved people, we are bound for hell. We need forgiveness. That is our greatest need because without it we're doomed so he said well, he wants us to preach this remission this forgiveness he also wants us to preach repentance repentance <clears throat> i've used the phrase many times to change a change of mind is more than a change of mind repentance is a change of direction repentance is i am i'm, I'm heading this direction and now i'm going to leave my flesh. I'm going to leave the world. I want to serve Jesus. This is when salvation has happened because Jesus said, you want to serve me? You deny yourself. You take up your cross. You follow me. It is not, I know I'm harping on this. It is not, you need to pray a prayer. Anybody can pray a prayer. I prayed a prayer when I was little and the best of my knowledge, it didn't work because I was doing it to please parents. You know what? I wasn't serious about serving Jesus. I wasn't serious about giving my life to Jesus. I may have wanted some absence of consequences being hell, but I needed to be turning from me and following my Lord. And that's what he requires. He wants us preaching repentance. That repentance will result in works. you remember when, when John was baptizing? And he said, he, he was. He, he, when he baptized, he said, bring forth fruit. I'm paraphrasing. Bring forth results in your life that are appropriate for the repentance you're claiming. That's what we're supposed to do. Our lives should show the results of a relationship with Jesus. And if my life's not showing that result, listen, either... I am really out of fellowship with Him, or I'm not saved. Something's messed up. And He expects us to be preaching repentance. It is a total lifestyle change where we give us over to Jesus. That's that's, that's when salvation has happened. It's us turning from and denying self and following Him. So, repentance and forgiveness that goes along with the repentance, should be preached. Next word he has there. That repentance and remission of sin should be preached. Okay, that word has the idea, is is the word we have for a herald. You've got somebody above you. You've got a boss. You've got a king. And he's saying, you go herald my message. That's the word we have. We are to go and herald the message of King Jesus. We are to go and Whatever it was Jesus tells us to say, we're to say it. We're to proclaim His message. We're to introduce people to our Lord. That's the job we have. We're to go in His place. Those are some of the best amens I've had in a long time. I'll take them. We're to go in His place. Give His message. Get this one. Nothing more. Nothing less. Let's not be so busy about dumbing down the gospel to make it more palatable for people and easier for them to receive that we water it down and they don't get the message. Let's give the Word of God accurately and let it fall where it will. God can use His Word. It's to be preached. The next phrase, in His name, under His authority. Jesus is both the object And He's the means of our repentance. Because of who He is, because of what Jesus has done, you and I have this opportunity. This is not something that, you know, we have the right to this, so to speak. Born with it. You and I are given this opportunity because of our faith in Jesus Christ. To pursue forgiveness through any other means is totally worthless. No other means other than Jesus Christ, faith in Him alone will grant you forgiveness. It can't happen. It's not of works. That's any shibos. So You're not going to come to Jesus by your works. You're not going to come by your religion. You're not going to come by being kind to people. Those don't bring you to heaven. They make you a good person. That's all not well and good, but they send you to hell. You need Jesus Christ. Repentance, and remission of sin. That's what we need. He says to do this for all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. All nations. Every people group in the world is to be receiving this message. Now I want you to notice something, and you may have heard this. Um, when we're told that we're to begin at Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. You know what I'm talking about? We'll see that next week or two weeks. Jerusalem's not their home. Eleven of the twelve disciples were from Galilee. And if he were saying, I want you to go home and start, he would have said, Galilee. He said, start in Jerusalem. And I want to suggest to you two things with this. Number one, the gospel, Acts 1.16, is to the Jew first and also to us Gentiles there's a priority to the Jews and you and I shouldn't be uh, minimizing that there is a Jewish priority within the scripture also Jesus had told them to go down to Jerusalem that's where they are can I just suggest that Jesus just wants you starting to share the gospel right where you are today it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you're going to be tomorrow. I mean, go share the gospel. That's what we're supposed to do. Regardless of where we are, regardless of where your home is, go share the gospel right where you are. Now, that's simple to say. That can be hard to do. tell what's going to happen. You're going to have some people going to look at you funny if you start trying to get into spiritual conversations with them. They're going to think you've turned fanatic on them. They may not want to be your friend anymore. Who's worth following? You were Jesus. you got to make your choice. Jesus is saying, you are going to start right there in Jerusalem. We want to do the right thing. Your next decision has to be a right one. You can't be hesitating. Your next decision must be a right one. And that's applicable here for us, homeless Third thing, Jesus' restriction. Verse 48. You're witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. We can look at that first phrasing in a couple of ways. You are witnesses of these things. You were eyewitnesses. You saw all this stuff. You witnessed it. You experienced it. You saw all these Old Testament truths being fulfilled in me, and that's true. But he's also saying you're going to be witnesses for me. You are my witnesses. You're the ones who are supposed to be promoting my gospel. You're the new guys doing this. You're witnesses. Notice he didn't say you're judges. He didn't say you're prosecutors. People don't get saved because you have a better argument than they do. It doesn't happen that way. They don't get saved because you're a good debater. If God is not drawing and God is not moving, they're not getting saved. And God delights to use us weak things to draw people to His Son. You and I need to make sure we're following our Lord, we're obeying our Lord, and we're doing things in a way that are going to bring glory to Him. You and I need to be witnesses. That's our job. Now, you might say this, the moment you became a Christian, you became a witness. And the question is, what kind of witness are you? Are you a good witness? A faithful witness? Or are you an unfaithful witness? Are you willing to tell the truth about what happened? Are you going to sit on the stand and keep your mouth shut? Keeping your mouth shut is an unfaithful witness. We need to be faithful. Last phrasing he uses here. Uh, he says, behold... In verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. So behold, pay attention. This is big. I send the promise of my Father. Okay, that's the Holy Spirit. He's sending the Holy Spirit to them, just like He promised He would in John 14, 15, 16. He said, I'm going to send you the Spirit. I'm going I'm to let you have Him to help you. Here's the point. You can't do this on your own power. You need me. You need me to help you You need the Holy Spirit. If God's kingdom is going to be advanced, it's not going to happen because we have the best arguments. It's not going to happen because you and I are Mr. and Ms. Personality. It's going to happen because the Holy Spirit is working through weak vessels like us, and He's using us. The Holy Spirit needs to do this work, and we need to be asking for His help as we go out and do our job. Because without it, we're hopeless here, the Holy Spirit is going to come and the Holy Spirit is going to help. So these, what we've just seen here, are the last two commands that our Lord gave before He departed this earth. Usually when someone says something and they're on their way out, you might want to listen. It's important. These are His last words. You and I need to further his kingdom by preaching repentance and forgiveness. This is a huge command. It's massive. So we need to remember that as with the privilege we have of being a follower of Jesus, responsibility comes along with that privilege. We are to we've had the privilege of having our eyes opened so now we have the responsibility of opening our mouths and witnessing for Him. Let's look at this last part. The parting of the Savior. The parting of the Savior. This is the Lord's last hurrah. This is all. This is the last that they get to see Him. And He's leaving this earth until His second coming. Uh, first point under this is His reception in the glory. Verse 50. And He led them out as far as to Bethany, and He lifted up His hands and blessed them, and it came to pass, while he blessed them, he parted from them, and he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So this event is really only recorded by Luke. We have it in the end of Luke, we have it at the beginning of Acts, but uh, this is the only person that records this for us, and it's a big deal. You have Mark and John mentioning it, but not in this kind of detail. So Jesus, what he does, he leads them out to the Mount of Olives. This is where he was crucified. This is where he's going to ascend, And it it seems like that's kind of a pattern. There's going to be humbling before there's exaltation. So Jesus takes them out to this Mount of Olives, and he says he lifts up his hands. That's just a posture that's for... We get get our word eulogy from this word. uh, He's praying for them. He's imparting a blessing on them. It's a positive thing, and he kind of steps back. And at that point, after granting this favor we're told that he's taken up from them. He's taken up into the clouds. Mark adds in his account that uh, where he's sitting on the right hand of the Father with power and authority. So we see his reception in the glory. Last one, the disciples rejoicing. This, in my mind, is not normal. 52 and 53, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Normally, when a loved one leaves, you don't jump up and down for joy. Normally, you have tears. Normally, there's sadness. You You wouldn't be really a happy camper when somebody's leaving you and you know they're going to be gone for a long time. There should be sadness and crying. But notice their very first response. He left and they worshiped. They worshiped Jesus. That's their first response. Here's what happened. They saw Jesus for who he was. They saw Jesus, and we're going to see this again in a couple of weeks. They saw him with his deity. They saw him as God. This is a a huge deal. They understand more His goodness and His glory and His love for them. They understood how the second coming and the future reign were going to work together. Jesus had caused them to put the pieces together. They're getting it. And because of that, they are worshiping Him. Can I suggest again, as you and I get an understanding of who Jesus is, As we understand His glory, as we understand His power, you and I should have the exact same response. It should cause us to worship Him, to make much of Him. We don't have an idol made with hands. We have the God of the universe who is our God. And it should cause us to worship when we get a glimpse of it. The second thing they did, they worshiped and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Jesus told them, Go back to Jerusalem and wait for, wait for the Holy Spirit there. You wait. They did what they were told. They obeyed Jesus. Isn't this another natural response? When you understand who Jesus is? When you recognize that He is deity, He's God come in the flesh, and we're accountable to Him, and yet we have a relationship with Him? Our natural response should be to worship Him and then to obey him. Notice the third response they had. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. These guys were pumped. They were excited. They just got to watch their Lord get received up into the heavens and lead them in a supernatural way. And bless them on their way out, on his way out. They were excited about the fact that their Lord has chosen them, He's using them, He's going to work in them. And maybe, maybe their joy was because they're worshiping and obeying. If you're not in the habit of worshiping the Lord during the week and obeying Him, you're missing the joy that comes in this life. Because it's a joyful life to walk with Jesus. And that's what they're doing here. Now I would suggest that verse 53 is kind of circular. They were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. The more that you and I worship Him, the more that we obey Him, the more joyful we're going to be, and the more we're going to be continually wanting to praise Him and bless Him, and it just feeds itself. Here's the problem. The opposite feeds itself too as you and I get out of the habit, if you will, of worshiping our Lord, and we decide to do our own thing, you're not going to have the joy that our Lord desires you to have. You're not going to be continually in the temple praising and blessing God. You're going to be more licking your wounds, and you're going to be not a very effective follower of Jesus. We need to start with worshiping Him. And part of our worship is our obedience. And I tell you what, as we go through that process, it becomes a snowball. And that's the avenue that we need to be on. This news of Jesus is good news. And this is what we need to be sharing with people, that they can be forgiven. But it all starts with you and I accepting who He is and guilty to Him. He is worthy to be followed. The main reason I think so many Americans spiritual lives are so pathetic at times at least is because we're the ones on the throne. We're the ones calling the shots. We're the ones dictating our lives and Jesus isn't. We're not letting Him have His Lordship over us. We need to think on who he is, and you need to respond to that. Remember who Jesus is. He is God, come in the flesh, and he deserves to be followed by us. That's where our satisfaction and our joy is going to come from. Let's stand for him. If you're here this morning, and you've never become follower of jesus that's his desire for you today he wants you to be his follower what you need is to be forgiven you've got sin and it needs to be dealt with and the only way you can have your sin forgiven is by putting your trust in jesus alone you need to make peace with the god whose judgment you're currently under there needs to be repentance I would love nothing more than to be able to help you if you're not sure this morning that you have a relationship with Jesus would you please either come forward during the invitation see me after but don't leave here without dealing with your sin that's what you need Christian I think we all know that we need to worship him we know we need to obey him We know we need to witness for Him. But it all starts with you and I recognizing Him for who He is. He's the Lord. He's the God of the universe. He's the one we're accountable to. When we get that understanding in our heads of all that He's done for us, of what He's currently doing for us, of His love for us, that will be our motive to be serious about serving. And that's what we need. We need to get serious-minded about our Lord. You do business with God as He does.